we're told that love is patient and love is kind. Uh, and then it says love does not envy. Uh, a world without envy is hard to even imagine, but it's good at times maybe for us to back up just a little bit out of, out of our normal world and just imagine what could be, what's available to us in Jesus and what a world would be like without any envy whatsoever. And so just imagine that you uh, deeply want to be married. Some of you don't have to imagine very hard. You may have five brides magazines out right now and at your table. You may have already pre-ordered wedding invitations. You just need a groom's name to be put into the invitation. You are, you are ready. And yet... Just imagine wanting to be married that passionately and yet feeling absolute pure delight in going to your friend's wedding. Or just imagine wanting to be a parent, a mom or a dad, wanting a baby. You've already selected the names. You, you're so passionate and yet imagine feeling such pure delight for a friend or friends as you go to the hospital and hold their third baby. Or imagine those of you who are kids, you're on the playground and you want so badly not to be picked last again. And yet when the teams are divvied up, you feel a pure joy and happiness for one of your close friends who's always picked first. Or imagine feeling really weary. You need a vacation. You, you, you need the sand. You need the sun. You need some... You need some, some, some time just to relax and yet feeling pure joy for your friends as you see all of their vacation pictures. In fact, those of you who are at the beach just want to say, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're not envying you. And uh, uh, since this is about envy, I just want to give those of you who are there just warning. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to be doing some yard work and I'm going to post some pictures and just don't be envious, okay, of... <laughs> of my lot. But, but the fact is, is that just imagine a world with no envy whatsoever. And if you could imagine it, and if the Bible would describe it, the Bible would describe it with one word and that word would be love. That's what heaven will be. That's what love allows this world to be. And yet we're not very good at it. So we need his help. So let me pray for us and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we come to you and ask that you would teach us in this area of our life, an area that doesn't come naturally. We do thank you for this day. And we thank you for those who have gone before us. We thank you for the sacrifices of men and women that they've made with their own life. And we pray today for family members who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Uh, we are um, we're not only thankful, God, we pray that you would sustain, that you would encourage, that you would be with, that you would draw near as they draw near to you. We pray, Father, that as we read your word, that you would help our hearts to find tremendous interest and passion, enthusiasm, Lord, that we would, we would regard it as important, that we would, we would not disregard the value of your words. I pray that you would give us the gift of belief and understanding and courage to apply this to our life. And my prayer, God, in doing so, is that we as a church family would grow in love. That we would be marked as your disciples by the way that we love one another. And that in this way, that love would remove envy from our hearts. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in your Bible, I would love you to turn 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And um, I'm going to need you to also turn um, to James chapter 3. We're going to read both of these places first in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is where Paul holds up love like a mirror so that we can look into it and see our own reflection, to see sort of how we're doing. It's intended to be a self-examination. Do I look like this? Is, is this how I treat people? Are these the inclinations that come out of my heart towards people when I'm in relationship with other people? Is my life marked by love? The first audience, the church of Corinth, they fell short. And they fell short pretty, pretty hard, to be totally honest. In fact, this church in Corinth, what they found was this, is, 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 is that it takes a long time and it's really hard to grow in Christ. This is something that we all find, right? We get excited. We trust Christ. And all of a sudden, now I'm going to become like him. And we find that it's arduous work. It's, it's patient work. Character, it's acquisition is slow going. And so what we naturally do, because we love to expedite things, is we just say, well, let's just expedite maturity. And how they chose to do it was simply redefine what maturity is. So instead of it being a matter of character that changes how we treat people, what they said is it's a matter of what you know, who you know, and what you can do. And as a result of that, this church was exceptionally talented. They were exceptionally gifted. And yet their gifts and their talents, their abilities, their, their knowledge, they were remarkably smart sinners. They, they, they knew all kinds of things about God. And yet their entire life was soiled by impatience. And unkindness and arrogance. They were irritable, resentful, and they were envious. And the Apostle Paul, he knew. He knew what Jesus wanted in his followers. Because Jesus said it with his own lips. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And so grieved over the distortion between Jesus, who is the source, and his church on the earth, which is supposed to be the shadow that reflects to people something that's true about God. Paul writes these words, starting in verse one, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, no matter how talented or gifted we are by God, No matter how pure, no matter how generous, no matter how convinced we are and we make strong convictions in our life, willing to even die for those convictions. If our life in Christ is not marked by love, the Bible says we are nothing. And then he describes it. He says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So over these two months, we're looking at each of these characteristics, this catalog of love 
in the hopes that our lives would be examined and we would begin to grow in each of these areas of our life. What we're going to look at this day is just a few of these words. Love does not envy. Now, Paul doesn't explain what he means here, but there's other places in the Bible that does. And that's where James is going to serve us this morning. And so James chapter three, starting in verse 13, says this. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Well, by his good, good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what do we learn here about envy? I'm going to start with just some truths about envy, and then we're going to talk about just a few ways at the very end of how we can actually grow in our love in not being envious. So the first thing we find here is this, is that envy believes a very dark lie. And the fact is that every single one of us struggle with envy. We've all experienced envy. All of our love has been compromised by envy. And the reason is because you and I, we have all We have all believed a lie. This is where he starts, isn't it? He says, listen, he goes, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. That means don't believe this lie. You're believing a lie when you have these things within your heart. So what is the lie? Well, the lie is this, is that if you have everything you want, you'll be truly happy. If you have everything that your heart can imagine, even if it's owned by someone else at this moment, then you will be truly happy. And you notice that the things that I read, in fact, your Bible translation may in first Corinthians say love is not jealous. And it may be that in your Bible, when I read in James chapter three and I read bitter jealousy, your Bible translation may say envy. And the reason is because they come from the same word. They're just a little different. They both come from the similar word, and it's zelo. It's where we get the word zeal or zealot. A zealot is somebody who sees something, they become so passionate about it that literally it's like blinders. They can't see anything else. And so they treat people poorly. They can knock people over so long as I get this. And so here's the deal, right? It's sort of like a coin. So the coin is the lie. It's one. There's one lie. There's one coin. And the lie is this. If I have everything that I want, I will be happy. I will be truly happy. But then there's two sides to the coin. Okay. One side is envy. And envy zealously wants what others have. If I had their house, if I had that boat, if I had that person's office or that job or that swimming pool or that vacation, then I would be happy. That's envy. Jealousy on the other side of the same coin, jealousy zealously fears what they will take. They may be better. They may take my job. They may take my office. 
They may, they may take even what I have. If what I have isn't enough to make me happy, then I may even lose that. But it's really all from one lie. Now, here's the deal. Paul says love doesn't envy. Love doesn't do this. In other words, love fights the dissatisfaction that emerges at the prosperity or progress of others. And the sad thing is that this spirit of dissatisfaction that emerges, it emerges in something very dear to us, and that is our heart. It emerges within. We see the prosperity and the happiness and the progress of someone else, and suddenly it starts to rub us the wrong way because they're taking what potentially could make me happy. If I had that, then I would truly be happy. So where does it come from? Just a few weeks ago, I'm in the garage and I'm cleaning the garage. So I'm walking around, putting tools up and boxes and all all sorts of things. And suddenly I turn, I look, and literally right in the middle of the garage is a copperhead snake. Right, right in the middle. And I'm sitting like, how? I even said, how did you get here? Now, the snake didn't talk to me, right? If he could, he'd say, well, look, you see that great big garage door right there? And then you see right behind that, there's woods and there's trees. Well, I was over in that tree and I just came right through and here I am. But here's the deal. It was amazing how fast it seemed to sneak up on me, even though when I looked, it wasn't moving at all. So the question is this, how does envy get there? This is how envy gets there. Envy slithers into our heart by comparison. You see, when we compare to other people, we can't see it. We can't see we're comparing. We just are comparing. So when do you finally see it? This is when you see it. It's when your comparison turns to coveting. It starts by saying, wow, they have that. I have this. They have that. I have this. And then it shows itself when we say, I want that. I need that. I must have that. And now all of a sudden, it's visible. And it's interesting that we can compare Um, In all kinds of ways in life. In fact, there's all kinds of tools that are at our disposal that sometimes actually incite us to do really good things and to experience really good things, but also to experience things just like envy, such as social media. You know, in 2012, 13, and the last study I saw was done in uh, 2014. I'm sure that they have more. This is all I could find, though. In this one study, uh, they actually reported uh, that, that a third of their sampling, right? And so they had a large swath basically enjoy Facebook or, or, or some mode of that. And then once they got done, they filled out a survey. And what they found is that a third of the people actually f- experienced and even voiced or wrote down that they experienced a sense of dissatisfaction as a result of looking at the advertised happiness of other people really is a fascinating thing. Now, obviously, this isn't the only thing that you can experience. Just a day or two ago, someone in our own church family, they found out that they didn't have cancer, and so they were celebrating. And, and so I celebrated with them. And so it, 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 it's not that it's entirely bad, but here's the deal. Really good things, when they're, when, when, they're, when they're used by a heart that's not right, it can turn it into a really bad thing. And so as a result of that, this is what can take place, right? So you get on and all of a sudden you're scrolling through and you're like, okay, I post a little thing. So I'm going to scroll. Oh, look, she's, she's at the pool again. 
Oh, nice pedicure. I don't know why everyone has to shoot pictures of their feet, but whatever, you know. They're scrolling through, and I'm like, you know, I'll just sit here and do my laundry, you know. And, and, and next one, I think you scroll a little bit longer. Hey, how about that? That looks like a fun party. I wouldn't know because I wasn't invited. And so you keep scrolling, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, look at this family. They're kids. They're so accomplished. Like they're, I mean, on roll everything. They're this, and they're this, and they're this. And about that time, your son runs through, and he has two Q-tips stuck up his nose like a walrus. And you're like, what am I raising? Look what they're raising. And they're like, comparison, things are falling apart. And all of a sudden you keep going, you're like, oh, I'm so happy she's in a relationship. That makes me feel really good. Wait a minute, what? that's a ring. Oh, well, lucky her. You see, comparison is a very bitter way to live your life on the earth. Because it vandalizes our joy and it squashes our ability and desire to love those people. And so envy believes a dark lie. The second thing we learn here is that envy creates deep chaos. Tremendous chaos within our heart. Notice what he says in verse 15 and 16 of James. He says, uh, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be what? Disorder. Same word, chaos. There will be chaos that's involved. Now, all of us have, have... heard the phrase, maybe I'm green with envy. It's interesting. I, I sort of look back and it's hard to find where that started. Some people think it was um, Shakespeare and it may have been. But the fact is, is that when somebody is sick, when they have food poisoning, we're like, oh, they're kind of green. They kind of look green. And it's that, it's that feeling of sickness within. It's like when you drink poison and it just makes you just want to throw up and you just, you're just sick and and so it's interesting that as a culture, we've identified what we feel like when we're full of envy is green. And so envy is sort of like poison that's poured into a well and we drink it. It's like this eye. It colors everything about us, everything we see. It colors our vision of other people. So what it does is the first thing it does is it creates chaos within. And this is how we know this. In uh, Verse 15, it says this, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly. And the second word is unspiritual. And that word unspiritual comes from an interesting Greek work word in its psychicus. It's where we get the word psycho. Psychotic. It literally makes us lose our mind. We become a zealot over something that makes no sense whatsoever. You remember King Saul, a blessed person. God has given him the throne. He's the first king of Israel, first man king of Israel, not God. And, 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 and he's just, he's blessed in so many different ways. It's time to go out. There's Goliath and David kills Goliath. So they come back and there's this amazing parade, this victory. And, and here's the, and he's the king. And he hears the people on the sides of the streets as they're coming back. Oh, David or Saul, he's slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And suddenly, suddenly envy filled his heart. And this is what the Bible says. It says that Saul was very angry. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And then it says, and Saul eyed David. From that day on, that's a horrible way to live your life, to have to be looking over your shoulder all the time because envy turns friends into rivals. 
And sometimes what's interesting is your friend doesn't even know they're your rival. David didn't consider himself to be a rival. David didn't want to take his throne. He had so many opportunities to take it in his own power. And he says, I'm not going to lift up my hands against the Lord's anointed. I'm not taking it for myself. I'm going to wait patiently. If it's the Lord's will, then it'll take place. I'm going to honor this man. I'm going to care for this man. I'm going to protect this man. I'm going to pray for this man. And this man kept looking over and saying, I am going to kill you. His eye was so full of envy. You see, envy gets no pleasure in having something. It only finds pleasure in having more than someone. And what this does is it creates chaos around us. It starts within us. We become psychotic and then it and then it moves around us. Saul kept trying to kill him. He kept trying because envy turns a friend into a rival. And, you know, when you think about a body of believers, One of the verses that we're supposed to be marked by is Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But do you know what envy does? When envy reigns within our heart, we actually switch the right verb with the right response. And so we rejoice when others weep and we weep when they rejoice. And this creates chaos. You remember Joseph's brothers? They were so envious of their father's affection for Joseph. One day, he's not asking for a dream. God gives him a dream. And in the dream, everybody bows down. The whole family bows down to him. He's got a dream. So he goes, hey guys, guess what? He tells them the dream. And this is what it says next. It says, and they hated him even more. And their envy-inspired hatred actually caused them to create chaos in their relationships and that they sold him into slavery. What an absolutely horrible thing. But it's not only a horrible thing. Envy is a demonic thing. Did you see what it says? It says it's all of God's wisdom. He says it's not these things, but envy is. And so he's saying envy, it is earthly. It is unspiritual. And third, he goes, it is demonic. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that our origins are really fascinating And then he created, and before he created us, he created angels. And he created one angel, his name was Lucifer. He was an archangel, and he created him with intense beauty. And suddenly, Lucifer looked at God and his throne, and he says, why do you get a bigger throne, a taller throne, a better throne than me? And so he says in his own heart, and he says, I will ascend, and I will make myself like the Most High. And so he attempts a little coup of heaven, and God's like, please. And so he throws him out. So now all of a sudden, the next time we see him, he's slithering in the garden and he comes to Adam and Eve. And what does he say? God has a big throne and you have little thrones. Don't you want a big throne? If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. And one of the most sad things you see within scriptures is surrounded by all the delights of what God had provided for them, just like he's provided to you and me is they became so fixated on what God said they couldn't have that they thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it until they had to have it and then they took it. And when they took it, a wave of chaos swept over not only their hearts and their relationship, but over everything God created. And so envy believes the dark lie and it creates this deep chaos within us. We need some good news, right? I need to send you out of here happy. And here's the good news of the Bible, right? Is that envy has one remedy. 
Now, the hope thing is that there is a remedy, but it's limited to one. You know, the Bible has this affection with one. God has this affection with one. He says, you know, there's one Savior. There's one truth. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one. There's one remedy for our envy. And the Bible doesn't give your name as that remedy. Not even to your own envy. He doesn't say, so look, you got envy problem? Here's your remedy. Look in the mirror. Bible doesn't say that. There's one remedy. And James speaks directly to that remedy. You notice twice he says that the wisdom comes from above to the earth. How did it get here? Well, it came in a man named Jesus. See, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing about this wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this. He says, we preach Christ crucified, and Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, when you see in verse 17, and it says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus is pure. Jesus is peaceable. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits. Jesus is impartial. He is sincere. He is the only remedy for the selfish ambition, the vain conceit, the jealousy, the rage, the envy that all begins in our heart. You look in the mirror. You're not the remedy and either am I. Your parents aren't the remedy. A book isn't the remedy. Jesus is the remedy. There's only one. But he is strong for the task. He is able to actually pull us out of that pit. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus put himself in an unenviable position so that we would have no reason ever to envy again. What did he do? He left paradise. He left the unending echoes of his own worship by everything he created that was holy in heaven. And he chose poverty. He left it all. And not only did he choose poverty, he chose to allow himself to be faced with temptation. He chose to allow himself to experience loneliness. He chose to allow himself to endure being betrayed. He took on condemnation. He took on a crown of thorns. He took on a cross. In the end, the Bible says that he took all of our envy, all of our impatience, all of our unkindness upon himself, and that he went to that cross And there he died for it. He absorbed all of the anger of God the Father that was directed towards us and our sin. He took every last drop of it. That is an unenviable position. And you know what the Bible says? Is that he was buried in a grave and then three days later he rose from the dead. And the Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 12, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right To become children of God. Now listen, there is one rightful heir. And that is Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation. When he keeps talking about breaking the seals. It's the inheritance of the entire world. Jesus comes in Revelation. He takes the scroll in chapter 5. And suddenly he begins breaking seven seals. Why? Because letters of inheritance at the time. That they were notarized by seven seals of wax. And so when your parents died and that will came to you, if you could break all seven seals, it proved that you were the rightful heir. Jesus Christ is the rightful heir of everything. And the Bible says this, he is the one and only begotten son. And yet when you trust Jesus Christ, you become a sibling. 
You become one of his brothers and sisters, and so do I. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, check this out. He says, look, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Think of the treasure chest that's available to us, that we receive a new name, a new identity, a new position in Jesus Christ. We receive an inheritance. He takes away all of our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us a brand new destiny. And you know what's amazing is that Jesus Christ, because he's perfect in love, he does not envy our surprising prosperity. He rejoices that that, that he secured it for us because love does not envy. Love seeks the good of others. Some of you this morning, you've never trusted Christ because you believe that your sin is simply too big. It's too powerful. And you're sitting here today. You say, is it, this is too good to be true. It's not. If you today will put your faith in Jesus Christ by believing in his accomplishments, confessing him as Lord and confessing you cannot save yourself. The Bible says you will become a child of God. You will become an heir and co-heir with Christ. That's available to you today. And we as a church family implore you, we beg you to do what we have done. And that is not secure it ourselves. It's not to be your remedy. It's to look to the one remedy in Jesus Christ and say, you are my Lord. That is what is available to you today. And for those of us who are in Christ, we know, you know, I know that our ongoing battle with envy is not over. And what what I want you to see is this, is that our ongoing battle is not a quantity problem. It's not, I need another car problem, another boat problem. Our problem is not a quantity problem. Our problem is an amnesia problem. We do not know how rich we already are. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Friends, this is there, whether you live in it or not. This is the truth. This is the good news of the gospel. That envy does have a remedy. Our love can be genuine and real. So what do we do with it in response to what Jesus did for us? A few things. First is this. is Let's expose and repent of envy in our heart. When you spot it. Not if you spot it. When you spot it. We have to relocate it like a copperhead snake. I didn't tell you this. But that snake. He doesn't, he's not still in our garage. Okay, He's been relocated. Part of him here, part of him there. He's been relocated, okay? He's gone, right? Now listen, some of us, we treat envy like it's a snake that just allowed to sleep on our couch. And we just sit next to it and say, because every now and then, you know, it's nice to pet the envy, isn't it? Every now and then it is. You're like, you know what? I, 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 I want to resent this person. So I'm just going to keep it around. I'll, I'll keep a safe distance. I'll just manage my envy. No, 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 you can't manage. Why? It's demonic. It'll create chaos. It'll make you psychotic. Romans 13 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That means you got to kick it out of the house. It can't live there. When you see it, you have to repent. You have to turn. So we're turning away from something. We're turning to something. What are we turning to? That's the second thing is let's ask God to teach us contentment. You see, a heart full of contentment is a heart empty of envy. If your heart is full of Jesus Christ, full of contentment, it will not be full of envy. 
Paul says it this way. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is amazing. None of us have any problem whatsoever in finding somebody saying, you know what? I've learned to be content in poverty. Because our only thought is, well, if we could always just have more, then that's one thing. But isn't it amazing? What he's saying is this. I also know the secret that I've been absolutely rich before. I've not had a quantity problem before, but you know what? I still had to learn the same secret in that scenario. That's, what's, that's, what, that's what boggles our mind. You see, because if you have absolutely everything in the world, but you do not have Christ at the center of your soul, you feel absolutely empty. And let me just say, it's so important for us not to take verses out of their context like we do so frequently. And this is one of them. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oftentimes we put that on athletic t-shirts. Do you know why we do? Because we want our kids to have a healthy self-esteem. And so we say, you know what? You may not be the fastest, but you can become the fastest. Listen, no, he can't. He can't. Look, you line up eight kids and they all have the same shirt that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Someone's finishing last. It's going to happen. This is the problem. We take a verse like this and we attach it to our success. But the context is learning to have contentment when we finish last. That's the miracle. When you don't have the beach house. Good to see y'all. When, when, when you're here in Raleigh. It's Memorial Day. You're doing yard work and yet you find contentment whether you're at the beach or whether you're in your yard. And the reason is because God's done a miracle within. Contentment. The third thing is this, is let's strike envy by blessing the blessed. When he says to us, rejoice with those who rejoice, it's important for us to understand something. There is a person made in the image of God that's struggling with your same struggles that you're envying. And so when you're dealing with your heart, you're repenting, you're saying, God, help me to be content. One of the things you can do to cut down that tree of envy in your heart is the bless the very person that you resent that they've been blessed. What does that mean? It means write a letter of blessing to the bride and groom, even though you wish it was you. It means prepare a meal for the new mother or father. It means take the guy who got the promotion or the girl who got the promotion out to lunch, even though that person may have more money and earn more money now than you. It means that we kill envy with kindness. And then the last thing we'll finish here is let's consider one another's struggle with comparison. Have you ever thought about somebody envies you? If somebody envies you, what can you do to help them in their struggle? You see, Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if that's, the, if that's true, then we have to say this. If I struggle with envy, what could my friends do that I'm struggling with? How can they celebrate their fascinating life in such a way that doesn't incite me to envy? In other words, love factors compassion into how we advertise our happiness. And so when you post your picture, think about, okay, if somebody is hurting, here's my baby. What about the person who has no baby? What can you write? So thankful for my baby and I am praying for those who want to be pregnant. 
See, what we're doing is we're factoring compassion. We're thinking about other people, even as we're celebrating the good things that God has done in our life. So may the Lord expand our ability to love by conquering our tendencies to envy. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your amazing love for us, how much you have made available. It is stunning. And I pray for those in the room this morning who are considering trusting your son, Jesus Christ, with their soul. I pray that you would bring them to Jesus. Would you draw them near? Give them the gift of faith. Father, we're, as we sing now and as we give an offering, we pray, Father, that the, Lord, that the inclinations of our heart that come out of our mouth in words and song and the resources that you've given us that we want to give so that this gospel can reach to the end of the world. God, we desire for you to be glorified in all of these ways. So would you take our resources and would you take our singing and would you multiply them for your glory and for the good of people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.